Welcome to the Comradorian and thank you for listening to our podcast. The speaker is Dr. Adam Chapman, Editor and Training Coordinator, the Victoria County History. And the subject of his talk is Wales and Agincourt. It was recorded at a Comradorian event in April 2015. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to say first thank you for the invitation and uh, I'm very pleased to be here. Um, anyway, uh, can you all hear me at the back? Traditional question. Okay, um, I try not to feed back in the microphone too much because I'm aware I speak quite loudly. Um, some seven years ago now, in the course of my doctoral research, I was encouraged by my supervisor, Professor Anne Curry, to consider the subject of Welsh involvement in the Battle of Agincourt and, in particular, to attempt to accurately quantify the number of Welshmen who participated in that famous battle. Um, Now, the results of that exercise remain relatively successful. Uh, My conclusions have changed relatively little in the uh, intervening years Um, and we'll revisit these at the core of this paper. Um, Such calculations are essential in considering exactly what the battle meant to those who experienced it, and what, as a military event, it came to mean in Welsh society in the 15th century and afterwards. <coughs> Tonight's paper, however, will consider in rather more detail what might be termed the myth of Agincourt, or at least a particular element or two of it. Um, in other words, what everyone thinks they know about the battle, and the place of Wales and the Welsh within it. In 2015, of course, we commemorate the 600th anniversary of Henry V's great triumph, and I am, therefore, extremely grateful that the Society has given me the opportunity to re- revisit these elements of my research and to refine my reflections. Anyway, it remains an article of faith in some quarters that the Battle of Agincourt was won by large numbers of Welsh archers. Indeed, uh, Price Morgan was telling me only five minutes ago that uh, if you go to Agincourt itself, the video presentation features a great number of very obvious Welshmen in hopelessly anachronistic red dragons. A moment's thought about what happened in Wales in the decade and a half before 1415 suggests that this faith must be at least a little suspect. Between 1400 and circa 1410, the royal shires and march of Wales and the English border counties were lands at war. For Henry IV and his son, this war was surely a personal affront as much as a rebellion against royal authority. Not least because of the brazen usurpation that was what was then considered a, a royal, an English royal title, that is, Prince of Wales. So, just uh, those of you unfamiliar with the divisions of medieval Wales, we're not talking about one country, we're talking about um, a divided polity between royal held shires and privately held martial lordships. Here it is important to understand the political context of Wales at the beginning of the 15th century. When Henry IV succeeded Richard II, he secured for his son the title the Principality of Wales, that is, the shires of Carnarvon and Cardiganshire, generally referred to as South Wales, imaginatively enough, and Carnarvon, Merionic, and Anglesey, usually called North Wales. Henry of Monmouth, because of course he was born in the, town, in the castle of Monmouth, was also invested with the Earldom of Chester, which included the county of Flintshire. In the southern march of Wales, Henry IV inherited the lordships of Kidwelly, Ogmore, Brecon, Hay and Huntington, and several other smaller lordships from his father, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster. Under Henry V, these estates all became part of the royal domain. 
Henry V also had the wardship of several other martial states as their heirs were underage, or in the case of the great earldom of Pembroke, vacant. Only the pre-conquest princes of Gwyneth, Clodenap Yorweth and Clodenap Griffith had approached this level of dominance within Wales. This dominance in tenurial terms was not, however, matched by the ability to control it. The North and Northwest, and Mariana in particular, were barely subdued at the end of the Glendora Rebellion and were beyond the reach of much royal authority, as well as being laid waste by the process of war. At the height of Owen Glendora's rebellion, all Wales was involved, and Owen enjoyed the support of the King of France and English rebels against Henry IV and his son. The rebellion began in September 1400 and gradually petered out about a decade later. Glendora, however, remained at large, and his supporters in the large in the larger parts of North Wales were beyond the reach of royal government. In light of this, it might be wondered that any Welshman fought for Henry V in 1415 at all. And why this might be is a question we shall return to. In the meantime, Michael Drayton, in his 1627 poem, The Battalion de Agincourt, described the Welsh presence in Henry V's army. Who no less honoured owed to their king, nor less valiant were in one strong regiment, um, had themselves bestowed. Now, Drayton was not privy to the surviving documents held in the English Exchequer. His count, his record of the Welsh and the English army in 1415, was part of a county-by-county county praise of the shires of England and Wales, but as it happens, and probably more by accident than design, he was more or less correct. Drayton was, of course, writing anachronistically. No chronicle or early history of the Battle of Agincourt mentions Welsh archers at the battle at all, and yet... In the popular imagination, Agincourt has been co-opted as a great patriotic achievement, the victory of the Welshmen in their knitted Monmouth caps over the French army. For much of the six centuries between 1415 and the present, however, Agincourt is a silent battle in Welsh culture. Among the extant corpus of Welsh language poetry, dating from the 15th century and the 16th century, the work of around 100 poets and several thousand poems praising the Welsh gentry there is not one specific mention of the Battle of Agincourt. References to English wars in France, specific battles even, are common, and these poems regularly reinforce the expectation that a gentleman in the late Middle Ages should be proficient in arms and should participate in war. In that respect, at least, the omission is a mystery. <coughs> However, we shall come back to that again a little later. In 1415, However, um, it was not known until quite late in the day where Henry V intended to campaign. Although it was advertised that the king had intended to launch a campaign somewhere in France and would be absent for a whole year, the choice being between northern France to challenge the French king directly or to uh, reinforce his, his lands in Gascony. The threat of a French invasion of England through Wales had often been a concern in the 14th century and the events of the Gondor Rebellion. Uh, where a French fleet came to assist Gondor's forces, only went some way to reinforce that. For the most part, the measures taken in Wales in 1415 against invasion were analogous to those taken in England, and were ordained in the same way at the same time by the King's Council. In February 1415, before the object of the expedition was announced, the clergy of all four Welsh dioceses were arrayed in arms, although details only survived from the southern diocese of Llandarth and St. Leeds. Garrisons were provided at royal castles, and measures were taken to secure the country. Martial lords were ordered to garrison their own castles, 
and to ensure peace and security. In England, commissions of array were issued in 20 counties for the defence of the realm during the King's absence. The Scottish border was reinforced and the English, and the English coast was defended. Unlike England, however, the principal threat in Wales was internal rather than external. As recently as 1412, Glendora and his followers had been able to kidnap and extort with impunity, and he and his surviving son, Meredith Aboyne, remained at large. In recognition of this, and in anticipation of the King's impending departure for France on 5th July 1415, Gilbert Talbot, the Justiciar at Chester, was ordered to authorise was, was authorised to receive Glendora into the King's peace, an offer which appears magnanimous, but was merely an official requisite, rep, uh, rep, recognition of the status quo. That is, Glendora was no longer a threat militarily, but he was unequally unlikely to be betrayed. If contact was made, then Glendora must refuse this offer, as Talbot was issued with similar instructions, this time importantly directed to, towards Owen's son, on 4th of February 1416. Uh, and although Meredith did, did eventually accept pardon, it was not until 1421. The focus of these defensive actions was inevitably Marionov. Men at arms and archers were stationed at the Cistercian Abbey of Cumber near Dogetby in Marionov, and a similar number at Bala. Um, archers were allocated to South Wales, were established on the southern borders of Marionov, which is the Cistercian Abbey of Estradfloor. Uh, the emphasis was on securing North Wales, and this is understandable because it had been the, the centre of rebellion. The recruitment and preparation of Henry V's expeditionary army was dependent on the king's inherent authority over his lands and subjects. This is true of the recruitment of all medieval armies, and quite a few post-medieval armies. Henry VIII was calling upon the same sorts of mechanisms. In Wales, of course, these had been hard won in Henry IV's reign, uh, in which the king and his son had overcome numerous plots against, against themselves and several outbreaks of civil war, not only in Wales, but also in Cheshire and the north of England. Henry V was able to recruit a substantial, an army suitable to invade France in 1415, using not only his personal authority, which, by leading in person, Henry added royal prestige and credibility to the enterprise, People, in other words, fighting to serve their king as well as the hard cash. Um, but well-tried systems of recruitment and loyal and experienced captains. As such, recruitment was recorded and audited by the Royal Departments of the Chancery and the Exchequer. The most important sources are contracts known as indentures, uh, a system which predominated for the raising of expeditions since the late 1360s, although it had been known for the 40 or so years before that. These were documents written out as duplicates by the clerks of the Chancery, the number of copies reflecting the number of parties to the contract, so you might have one or two or three captains on a copy kept to the king. And the copies were cut by an irregular zigzag line resembling rows of teeth, hence the name. Um, one copy went, each went, went to each captain with the king's seal, while the other, sealed with the captain's seal or seals, was retained by the Chancery. The copies could be brought together to check potential fraud had led to date. And this technique was a common one in the Middle Ages. It was used in any context where dispute might later arise. In, military, in the military sphere, this included masters of men and receipts for payments and for supplies. The indenture specified the duration of the campaign, the number of soldiers that each captain should bring, rates of pay, and other items and conditions of service. 
The number of soldiers required in each canton was generally expressed according to type. So many men-at-arms, that is, the, uh, the, the, the highly equipped, highly trained, fully armoured soldier, and so many archers. Uh, they emphasised that the financial gain was an important element of warfare. The indentured state is all important prisoners, for example, in this case, such as the King of France or important nobles, um, taken by a captain or a member of his retinue, were to be handed to the crown in return for compensation. For gains from ransoms of other prisoners, for booty, money, gold, silver, or jewels, of a value greater than 10 marks, that's uh, six pounds, 13 shillings, and fourpence, one third of their value went to the captain, the crown took a third of the captain's share, and a third of the third of the gains of the captain's men. Once the indenture had been sealed, the Chancery sent a warrantor issue to the Exchequer, authorising payment of the first instalment of pay. The warrant should keep the key term, repeat the key terms of the indentures and be useful because they preserve details of indentures that have not survived. Money paid out by the Crown is recorded on the issue rolls, and usually military expenditure appears alongside other royal expenses. The King's gambling debts, his goldsmith, his furriers, important members of court, his allowance for his wife and children. In 1415, however, the Exchequer recorded military payments on a special issue roll. And this is where we find some evidence for the special company of Welsh soldiers he recruited. <coughs> the means by which Henry recruited from his estates, however, was slightly different, although the documentation was similar. In the offic- his officials assumed responsibility at royal command rather than by entering voluntarily into a contract with the Crown. In common with the royal and duchy estates in Wales, the English royal shires, notably Cheshire and under the Lancastrian kings, Lancashire, provided companies of artists to the royal army. The recruitment of companies of artists from the royal domain in Wales in 1415 followed a precedent set by Richard II, who in 1385 had recruited 70 Welsh foot archers to serve in Scotland. Similar numbers to serve in Ireland in 1394. This was slightly strange, indeed anachronistic, since foot archers, that is, archers going everywhere on foot, English armies in this period fought on foot, travelled everywhere by horseback. Um, had not formed a regular part of English expeditionary forces since the resumption of the wars of France in the, 40, in the 1360s. Their presence was anomalous, and English tactics in France and indeed in Scotland were based on speed and ease of movement. It was normal for all members of English armies to be mounted to, to bring, and to bring spare horses. Richard, infamously, um, retained archers from his own world of Cheshire. Um, as his personal bodyguard during the final years of his reign, but he did not recruit companies of archers specifically from Cheshire in 1385 or 1394, although he did in 1399 when a company of 10 knights, 110 men-at-arms and 900 archers from the county accompanied him to Ireland. In 1400, Henry IV recruited equally heavily from Cheshire, which of course had been loyal to the previous usurped king and have been an area where plotting against Henry IV had occurred very early in his reign for a campaign to Scotland. In part, no doubt, is an expression of royal authority over the county most closely associated with his predecessor. Henry ordered 60 men-at-arms and 500 archers to meet at Newcastle, and 65 men-at-arms and 488 archers duly appeared. In 1400, Henry also utilised his personal estates as Duke of Lancaster, Unfortunately, the rebellion that enveloped Wales in the subsequent decade means that there is no evidence from the surviving documentation related to this campaign that Henry IV used men recruited from Wales in a similar way in 1400. 
So we might ask, from a military perspective, why it was that such large numbers of less mobile foot archers were intended to do on campaign. In 1385, and possibly on the two Irish campaigns, Richard's armies were primarily intended to impress, either, either by part, as part of the last feudal levy in England, to impress the Scots at the power and authority of an English king, or in Ireland to remind, the, to remind Irish chieftains who was boss. In each instance, however, the campaigns were brief, and, and they didn't need to be terribly mobile. There was no sort of benefit or disbenefit to be achieved. In 1400, Henry IV's goal was as much the reconciliation of England to a new king who had achieved the rank by usurpation uh, as any military advantage to one over the Scots and their French allies. It is true that armies led by the king in person were generally much larger than routine military expeditions for defensive or offensive purposes um, since they were built around the king's household. In 1415, however, these archer companies that were recruited by Henry are significant since they, they, since they served the king directly. Their presence emphasised superior lordship of the crown. And they could also alter the overall balance of the army. The mixed retinues, that is, retinues of men-at-arms and archers, generally speaking in this period you get one man-at-arms for every three archers. Um, so the, the men-at-arms make up one quarter of the army. Um, but the additional... Foot archers bought from Lancashire, Cheshire, and Wales, altered that ratio from one man at arms to four archers. Which might sound though, but to the percentage difference of 75 to 80% is not huge, but it does increase what the armed force can do. It means you have a large, effective, and flexible military force, which can also leave soldiers behind in siege situations or to garrison captured fortresses. This all sounds dangerously boring, like boring that military history. I'll move on very shortly. Um, right. How do we know about this stuff? Well, there's quite a large corpus of documents. And the details of the composition and organisation of the men recruited from Wales survive in the National Archives. And uh, here is an example of one of them. And the documents in question, which are uh, found in the reference number E101-4620, um, that is the Exchequer, mis Exchequer Miscellanea Files, number 46, file 20. It consists of a file of nine dented membranes sewn together recording three separate groups of payments uh, to three apparently separate musters of men recruited from the shires of the Principality, that is Cardiganshire and Carmarthenshire, and the liberties dependent upon them. The other two documents record recruitment from two of the main Duchy of Lancaster estates in southern Wales, the Lordships of Brecon um, and its dependent Lordships and Cadwelly. The indentures were sealed um, between the Chamberlain of South Wales, that is the Chief Financial Officer of the Royal Estates, uh, John Burberry, a Herefordshire Esquire, and the men at arms whose job it was to lead the force. You can see their names um, in the second and third rows there. Um, drawn, uh, draw, drawn to lead these forces of archers. And the muster of the men from Cardiganshire to Marmanshire was, as was usual, um, conducted at Carmarthen, either in, in the square before the castle or immediately outside the town. Uh, and not that specific, just as at Carmarthen. Um, that for the Lancaster lordships of Brecon, Hay, and Huntington, and several other minor lordships uh, in royal hands, including Clansteff and St. Clears, 
uh, Oyster, uh, Isplet, and Tarakan, was apparently made at Brecon. Uh, despite the fact you'd think for most of those lordships uh, in the southwest corner of Wales, it'd be lots more convenient for them to go to Carmarthen. Uh, lots of these things smack of administrative neatness rather than accurate or in reality, um, since the masters at Brecon and Carmarthen are supposed to be made on the same day. Uh, they're about 40 miles apart on medieval roads, even the fast horse. Your kidneys wouldn't thank you for it. It's not going to happen. Um, this is just a tidy way of doing your accounts. Um, interestingly, there are, no, uh, there are no record of recruitment in the other Lancastrian lordships uh, in South and South East Wales. That are, those are Ogmore on the western edge of Glamorgan, uh, Monmouth, and the three castles White Castle, Skenthrift, and the third one's name, I think. Uh, Grossmont. Grossmont. Thank you. Um, um, from Brecon and the other Lancaster lordships came 10 men at arms, 14 mounted archers, and 146 foot archers. So rather than everybody being on horseback, only 24 of uh, nearly 160 were. Um, from the Royal Shires of South Wales, that is Carmarthenshire and Cardinshire, and their dependent lordships came, a further 10 men at arms, 13 mounted archers, and 100 or so other archers, foot archers, bringing a grand total of 523 men. Uh, there are also three mounted archers, three men-at-arms, and three foot archers in Kidwelly. Uh, that's by the by, really. Um, all were paid at the usual military wages at the time. That is, six months, 12 months a day for men-at-arms, and six months a day for the archers, whether they were mounted or not. Uh, the muster's taken... By John Murbury were, regard, were, were taken by John Murbury regardless of his position in each lordship. He was steward of the lordship of Brecon, the chamberlain of the lord, uh, chamberlain of the Countess of South Wales. Yet he's always in the documents called chamberlain, which suggests that whoever was copying these down didn't really know what they were doing. Um, but they had a nice neat hand, which is easy to read, which is the key thing. Um, Murbury had been a long-serving Lancastrian servant. Uh, he uh, briefly served uh, John of Gaunt in his younger days. He'd been with uh, Henry of Monmouth throughout, his time, throughout the Gondor Rebellion um, and held just about every administrative office it was possible to hold in southern, in southern Wales. Um, and his position as steward of Brecon and Chamberlain of South Wales indicates that basically the royal estates were all being run, by, run together and run under the auspices of this one man. So there's a degree of centralisation to administration. At the foot of each indenture are the remains of traces of ten seals on separate tags, the seals being those of the men-at-arms leading the retinues, who were, by seeing in the document, acknowledging their receipt of the monies paid them. Meaningful details visible only two of the seals, however, but the best surviving uh, there's initials RB, signifying just belonging to one Richard Boyes, who you can see on the bottom left there, fairly easy to read, um, the man-at-arms and lordship of Brecon. The other detail which you should be able to see in this picture um, refer, indicates some linguistic division. Um, Richard Boyes, as someone who's clearly anglophone, has his name written in the usual Latin manner, document is written in Latin, abbreviated rendering of Ricardus. Um, though in this case, it's actually Richard, but unusual. Whereas the Welsh swear for both, and something at Ricard, um, is rendered R-Y-C-A-R-D, so Ricard, but Richard, um, rather than Richard, Richard 
so that you get away in the document. The clerks are clearly familiar enough with the people to differentiate between Welsh speakers and English speakers, which suggests that they were composed by originally, at least, or not versions we have surviving, by an oral roll call. The first evidence of this group, this company of archers, comes from 7th of May 1415, when £435, that is the wages for the first half of one quarter of their year's service, it's a rather roundabout way of saying an eighth of a year, uh, was transferred from the Exchequer to the Chamber of South, South Wales via the account of the Sheriff of Hereford. In other words, the money never left the Exchequer, it went from Herefordshire to South West Wales, um, and but was accounted for in Hereford with the sheriff. Um, there was no evidence that conventional military indentures, i.e. specific contracts between the captains and the crown, were made. Um, and this differs markedly from how uh, similar recruitment was done in Lancashire and Cheshire. Um, in Cheshire, 470 men were raised and paid from the county's revenues, um, although it's possible that 650 had originally been intended. You can't tell, it's lost in the midst of documents. This is because Chester, this is because the Earldom of Cheshire hadn't been devastated by ten years of civil war, basically. It could afford to pay for its own men. Um, 500 men were recruited from Lancashire, uh, divided into groups of 50, each group under the command of a local knight or a squire. The local knights or squires often had their own individual retinues as well as the 50 men they were leading. Um, this is something you don't find in the, in the Welsh context. It is certain, however, that not all of the men assembled at Carmarthen actually left South Wales. Some precautions taken again, taking Wales against disturbance in the king's absence have been noted already. But in addition to the standing forces specified by the king's privy council, a force of nine men-at-arms, nine mounted archers, and thirty-eight foot archers was retained by the crown for service for defending, for keeping the peace. Basically, um, they were paid twelve pence, six pence, and four pence a day, depending on what they were doing. Um, and was served between 6th of July and 11th of November 1415. Now, four of these nine men, four of the people detailed to do this were actually named in the documents, and they are they were Henry Gwynn, Davavak Yeyan Akhtahan, Twalin Akhtahan, and Yeyan Teg. Um, with the exception of Henry Gwynn, all of these, were man, all of these men were listed on the muster table for Marvin. So they clearly can't have been in two places at once. It's unlikely they were drawing double pay. Um, so, and it's probable, therefore, that the other men they were fighting, who were, serve, who were serving under them, were also drawn off the men who took command. So this already takes the number, a relatively small number of 523 down by about 40. Um, they were paid service in Wales at the same time that the remainder of the company was heading for Southampton and thence to France. Um, one of these, David Vapier and Trahern, had actually indebted to serve as a man-at-arms for commandership and was, as is almost inevitable, a former rebel. Uh, he is known to have supported with Gondor and repented his sins, so to speak, and presumably this is one of the reasons he agreed to serve in 1415. In fact, he had forfeited his lands in Cantor Moa in some commandership to, to one Davos Gan. Uh, David Gam, who we will be encountering again later in 1401, and presumably he required pardon as well as wages. Yain Turga, Claudin Akron, and Fluid enlisted to serve as archers, and both later held administrative offices in the royal shires of South Wales. So these are not poor men. It's important to understand that an archer does not mean a peasant. These are, and we'll go into reasons why that might be in a bit later. Um, 
If it seemed likely, the remainder of this group were drawn from the uh, men recruited from South Wales. Perhaps only 450 men actually left Wales in the first place. Now, confirming what these 450 men actually did in France, if they got there, and once they got there, is complicated by a complete absence of further reference to them in the records. So, I'd certainly imagine this is superstition, is uh, uh, assumptions. Um, some that evidently reached Wilmster and Wiltshire before the 24th of July, a week before the expedition was due to sail, since the close rolls record a reference to English and Welsh soldiers refused to pay the food. Um, the king issued a stern injunction that they should do so. If they'd left southern Wales on the 6th of July, the date at which their pay was supposed to be given to them, um, this implies a rather leisurely journey to Southampton. Um, but one possibility mentioned in the decisions, uh, accounting decisions taken in March 1416 was that any men left behind in England because of lack of ship available shipping at the point of embarkment, of which was a real problem. Shipping was a real limitation on what you could actually, on the army you could actually take over, um, would be left. The royal policy was that no financial allowance should be made for those who were affected, so they were just out of pocket and tough luck. It is certain, however, that at least some of this company served in the first action of Henry's campaign, the Siege of Harfleur. The unpleasant estuarine conditions in the mouth of the River Seine in, early, in late summer and early autumn caused a significant number of casualties in among the besieging army, most likely through dysentery, uh, possibly typhoid fever, and anything you might catch on a mosquito in a marsh. Um, most notably, Thomas, Earl of Arundel, and Richard Courtney, Bishop of Norwich. Many others also suffered. It's been calculated that at least 1,687 men were officially regarded as unfit for service by the end of the siege. Some of these men were given license to return to England, and several lists of the sick survived. Um, these lists, of course, are not comprehensive. This is partly due to the fact that not all these sources survive, but also, as the Welsh chronicler Adam Rusk noted, there were some who, disgraceful to relate, simply deserted the king's army to the king's fury. Well, yes, he's paying, but he would be critics. Um, one of the lists, however, reveals that some of the Welshmen recruited from southern Wales made it as far as Halfler since they recorded among the sick. Uh, quality evidence, citing uh, the biography of Henry V, uh, W.H. Wiley, states that 54 of the archers recruited from Wales suffered. Um, but that seems to be just simply the number of Welsh names accounted in the list. There are quite a number of people with English names fighting in the Seas Rat News, um, so he didn't count them, despite the fact that quite a few were pierced. The number is almost certainly greater and is not helped by the fact that the clerks in Harfleur were not terribly accurate when it came to recording names. In the original musters, we have them recorded up to about the third or fourth, or sometimes even the fifth generation of patronymic. At Harfleur, it's just the first. It's just father. It's just father, son, son, son of father. Which means, that which colour, you know, which colour of Jack is it? You just can't tell. Um, the vagaries, uh, why this interpretation is also since it ignores the English names so, um, For this reason, it's possible to give exact figures of the sick, except among the men-at-arms, who, as men-at-arms, their rank is also listed, make them a bit more distinctive. Um, six of the 20 men-at-arms recruited um, seem to have gone homesick from Harfleur, which implies really quite high levels of attrition amongst these forces. One of them, Watkin Floyd, uh, was supposed to be knighted on the field of Agincourt. Well, he can't have been. He wasn't there. And we can say this quite, quite, quite happily because he is, he is sent home sick 
with a note from his mother. Um, others, Andrew Abclois and Rhys Abclois and Abclois Fechan, Meredith Aboy and Walter Abclois Fechan and Owen Abshenken also sent home. I hope I've mangled those pronunciations too bad. Um, the men from the Royal Counties, the, the attrition rates among the men from the Royal Shire, as it seems, were higher than those from the men of Bracken, um, which suggests they may have been deployed differently. Or at least one was upstream of the other and thus got the better drink, first use of the drinking water. Um, what happened next is difficult. Certainly there are none, no Welsh names in the uh, musters of the Halflow garrison for the first quarter of 1416. So those at the left must have gone with the main army. Uh, at least 60 of them, at least 60 of the 450 we have left at Halfler went home. So the number that proceeded towards Agincourt, towards on the march towards Calais, was perhaps 400 or perhaps even fewer. Around 5% of the army that left Halfler, reckoning to be about 8,000 men, according to uh, the most recent and most accurate estimates, which around Curry's. Um, most of the people making estimates about this have only looked at the chronicles, they haven't looked at the sources, so I'm, I'm not going to give them too much house, too much house room. It must be evident, therefore, that whatever part the Welsh, archer play, Welsh archers played in the battle, it was only a relatively small part of the overall army. An important part, nonetheless, because they, archers played an important role, but only a relatively small part. Watchmen and we can be confident of this because Welshmen were extremely rare in the other retinues which made up Henry V's army. Um, the King's dominance in southern Wales and his decision not to recruit from the northern shires is one obvious limiting factor. Um, but only a small number can be found in the retinues of those marching lords that served. The largest, um, of the 470 men in the retinue of Thomas, Earl of Arundel, Lord of Chirk, Powys, no, 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 not Powys, Lord of Chirk, Oswestry, and Clun. Um, only 40 were all of whom served as replacements for, English, for Englishmen who had fallen ill at Harfleur were actually identifiably Welsh. Only five of the 60 men taken by Lord, uh, Sir John Gray, Lord of Rethin, um, were Welsh, or at least bore Welsh names. It's difficult to no, we, that's the only way we actually have it determined. We're not available to ask. Um, among the reckoning of the Duke of York, five men have Welsh names out of 400. The young Earl of March's reckoning um, contained just one identifiably Welsh archer, John Griffith. But the Earl of March was a very young man. He'd only just come into his estates, and as such, was not. Was only, he was really going on this as a training exercise. This is what you do as a young noble. You get taken to France as part of a big expedition, you see how it all works, and then you hopefully you can run your own retinue next time one comes along. Um, the largest, and before the rebellion, the wealthiest of the martial orders, the Morgan, was in the hands of the 19-year-old Richard Bitchin, and he remained in England. So any recruitment from the lordship would have been done by other lords whose retinue lists haven't survived. We know, that we, we know some did happen because there are records of two Glamorgan men being arrested for being Welsh in the area, somewhere near Cambridge, um, a few years later, on the way back from pilgrimage at Walsingham, giving thanks. The explicit purpose of that pilgrimage was to give thanks for their survival at the Battle of Agincourt. Sadly, that document gives no further detail, and I can't trace them in other records related to Cardiff, where both of them say they're from. So... 
the start. Richard Beauchamp had uh, gained control of Glamorgan by writing his wife, Isabel de Spencer, um, on a, only requiring access to the lordship itself on April February 1415. He did not have a strong presence in the lordship. Although you can see in 1417 and 1419 when he did uh, raise revenues, the Glamorgan gentry were widely recruited to serve in his revenue. So, who were these men that that's Richard Boyd's seal. Um, who are these men that Henry V actually recruited? And why did they choose to go, if indeed they chose? Well, it's noted that some of these men were former rebels. And one feature of the documents suggests that so were many others. That they were archers, though, so it does not imply they were poor, um, or poor in status or in wealth. A year's pay for an archer, and that's sixpence a day, amounted to nine, shilling, nine pounds, eighteen shillings, and six, uh, which is equivalent. Uh, to the income from a medium-sized English manor in a relatively sort of well-to-do part of the country. In Wales, that would probably equate to a bit more. Obviously, man-at-arms wages, £19.17 shillings, would equate to the income of actually quite a substantial manor. Um, so this is, by the, by the 15th century, an archer's equipment is much more complicated simply than a bow and a quiver of arrows, uh, or his mum of cap. We're not talking someone who looks like that. This is Chancellor Clark's idea of the what a Welshman looks like in the late 13th century. No, I don't know why he's only got one shoe, so your guesses are very well. Um, There's a lot more complicated than bones and quiver of arrows. Swords, daggers, and a helmet of some sort were expected. They were essential equipment. A sword is still not a cheap item in this period. It's a symbol of status and a symbol of authority and a symbol of wealth. Aside from the fact that you actually have to take a horse with it. Not, and probably not just one. You want to, um, this placed military service beyond the reach of all but the pro- most prosperous or well-connected of the peasantry. <coughs> yeoman farmers in the bath. Yeoman farmers in the bath, really, is what we're looking at for soldiers in this period. At least four of the archers from the company are known to have been former rebels, and further research would doubtless yield many more. Um, one indication of this is that no fewer than 117 men uh, mustered at Carmarthen were listed as serving in the place of another specifically named individual. And the specific naming is important. Rebels or not, this at least implies the men who provided substitutes have been summoned in person. And it's certainly possible that many of these men were trying to work their way back into favour, looking seeking forgiveness for rebellion. And Curry suggests that these were, in fact, the substitutes provided on campaign to replace those falling sick, falling sick at Harfleur. But in this context, it seems unlikely, since, these, these, since the records are those given at the time that the first receipt of money was made. And in all other cases of substitutions, um, the date is given and the name of the person being substituted. Clearly, in, our, in the case of Arundel's reckoning, that's exactly what's happening. It's very clear and it's detailed. So. Um, in this case, it points to something else. It is probable... Therefore, these substitutions were made at the time of muster and were accepted by both Murbury and by the men-at-arms whose seals were attached to the indentures accepting payment. And the most likely reason is that these men were summoned in person. And the most likely reason for this being so is that those among those who had submitted to the crown at the end of the rebellion in Marvitra and Cardinalship, this being in 1405, um, we know that lists were made up to record who had actually submitted and come into the king's peace, 
but sadly, in South Wales, these haven't survived. In fact, the only ones to survive are from Anglesey. Um, but the, ones, the list in Anglesey revealed that uh, there was a level of support for the rebellion, and, that, and it was by those with a stake in society, with something to lose, that fought, that chose to fight. And I suspect we're dealing with a similar sort of picture in Southern Wales in this period. That said, there are other potentially darker inducements. In 1418, Hugh Eaton, the receiver of the Lodge of Kitwelly, told four men that they'd been assigned to go as men-at-arms to the siege of Dorn, although they could be excused this service on payment of a large fine. This was quite a common arrangement in the March of Wales um, throughout the 14th century. Examples we find in the court rolls of the Lodge were different fluid. Um, however, in this instance, one of those allegedly selected was aged over 70. Um, not unknown uh, for soldiers over the age of 70 to fight in the Hundred Years' War, but really very, very rare, um, causing the tenants of the Lordship to report the receiver for extortion. Um, several of the archers serving in 1415, however, can be demonstrated to have served in the wars against Oingundor, as well as in later campaigns in France. One, Lawrence Dyer, served under Rustin de Villeneuve in the garrison of Cardigan in 1404, before serving as an archer from to Caiwedros, uh, in the place of one very sapped up of Abiea in 1415. He was probably a member of a merchant family of the name of Dyer in the borough of Cardigan. Or we have to about Madoc in the Lodge of St. Clair's, served with Lawrence in 1404, and on behalf of one Philip Clement in 1415. So there is a degree of known, people with known military connections, known previous military service, saying, yeah, I'll do that. You don't want to you want to buy me out of it? That's fine. Another archer who sustained a longer military career was in one John Perry. It's always spelled Harry in the sources. I don't know why. It must have been his, presumably his accent, I guess. Harry must have been his name. Probably Kidwelly, who served as a mounted archer in 1415. He had served in 1405 with Sir Richard Arundel, an expedition against Bundor, at sea with a Pembrokeshire knight, um, although his, most of his estates were in Devon and Cornwall, Sir Thomas Carew in 1470. Um, our last reference to him, serving with the same arch as he's listed alongside in 1415, suggesting similar recruitment mechanisms persisted. It comes from 1420. Um, his colleagues being William Tucker and Reese Subdav of Thomas. Half the men from the, from the shires of South Wales, five of the ten could be identified as former rebels. Um, one, the most famous of these, Griffith Meredith and Henry Don appears to actually stay with the army long enough to have fought at Agincourt. He was the grandson of the notorious and incorrigible rebel Henry Dunn, uh, also of Kidwelly. Griffith had received pardon for his involvement in Glendor's rebellion and for besieging the castle of Kidwelly um, in 1413, for the payment, again, of a large fine. Unlike his grandfather, Griffith repented his misdemeanours. Uh, his grandfather was the kind of man who, having been pardoned, decided to fine his neighbours by extorting money from them for not joining him in rebellion. It's the kind of man men we have to deal with. Um, and he used his experience um, to, good, to good service in French wars for Henry V and Henry VI. Griffith's reward included pardon and favour. He received letters of denizenship giving him full English status in 1421, and most significant of all, even in light of the captaincies he held in France, which included Cherbourg, Carenton, Tonqueville, Lisieux, and Neufchâtel, was the constableship of the castle of Kidwelly. There can't be many people who have been made constable of the castle they've early besieged, but Griffith Dunn is one of these. Um, unlike Griffith Dunn, Meredith Aboy, 
a relative of the family of Dalvac Woolen, um, seems to have confined his activities to Cardiganship after 1415. Although he seems to have been intending at least to serve in 1419 because he was granted letters of protection. Um, there are no surviving musters from that year, so we don't know. Meredith's possessions have been confiscated in 1406, and he was among the hostages submitted by the defence of Aberystwyth Castle in 1407 to confirm a truce between them and then Prince Henry. This is an example of Prince Henry's naivety, and the, the truce was a complete fiasco. Um, the Welsh took advantage of the opportunity to resupply the castle, and the siege lasted for another year, uh, as did Meredith's imprisonment. He'd probably been released by 1409, and after falling at Harfleur, returning home. Uh, filled a variety of royal offices in West Wales, demonstrating his reconciliation with the authorities. He was granted the important office of bailiff, itinerant of Flambadal, that is the point of clothing of in 1416, and fulfilled numerous other offices until 1439, when he was forced into retirement by the machinations of the Carmarthenshire uh, Esquire, Griffith, Fat Nicholas, and Stan Thomas. Despite this reversal, he had by this time re established his position in Cardiganshire society and an accumulating estate valued at £8 per annum. Even so, this uh, represented a substantial decline in his fortunes. The lands he had forfeited in 1406 were valued at £14 per annum. <coughs> anyway, so bring us back now to Davov Gam, or Davy Gam. The squire of Brecon, it is known that Davov Gam died at the Battle of Agincourt, which has recorded at least five chronicles and two noting his nationality. Bassett calls him David Gam, David Gam, a squire, Welshman. Adam of Usk, David Gam of Brecon. Uh, Gam was not, um, and Adam of Usk was sufficiently local that he may actually have known Gam personally. Uh, Gam is also included in the list of dead in Hall and Hollandshed, but without any mention of his nationality. And the same is true in Henry V, where the, where the dead are named at the beginning of Act 4, Scene 8, Line 96, if you have to stand position. So who was he? Well, Davith or David Gam, depending, we're going to go with Davith from now on. Um, his nickname indicates that he had some form of visible disfigurement, um, given his success in, as a soldier, perhaps just something similar to Squint. Um, he was a lifelong servant of the Lancastrian cause. Wynne's expansion of Powell's 16th century history of Cambria caused him a great stickler for the House of Lancaster. With his brother Gwilym and son Morgan, he was appointed King's Esquire by Henry IV, and his loyalty to the English cause during Glendora's Rebellion was important both to Henry IV and to Henry V, then Prince of Wales, but, but he appears to become totemic to his Welsh opponents. During the rebellion, Davoth gained the estates with a number of Glendora supporters. But in 1412, after the event officially over, Gam was abducted and kidnapped by some of these same supporters. And as such, he was granted permission to levy taxation from the martial order of Gretchen, a subsidy to actually repay the ransom of the liberty. This suggests that the man was held in very high regard by the Crown. Unlike all these Welsh groups encountered so far, Davo entered into a personal indenture with the king on 9th of April 1415 to serve as a man at arms on his own with three archers. None of these are named, which is problematic. Tradition, 
commonplace in Agincourt studies, suggests that Davok was knighted on the battlefield, something that was not unknown in the Middle Ages, of which there is no contemporary evidence. As already noted, 15th century English sources noted, recorded Gamerson as squire. It was not until Sir Walter Raleigh's History of the World in 1617 that a special role was claimed for Gamerson, who allegedly sent out to spy on the French. He returned with a much cited report that of the Frenchmen, there are enough to be killed, enough to be taken prisoners, and enough to run away. This was taken up and embellished by Michael Drayton in his Battalion of Agincourt, and it wins 1697 expansion of Powell's history. Um, Powell's history did not, in the original form, actually mention anything that happened, anything that happened much after 1282. Um, however, none of his works actually claim that Gam was knighted on the field posthumously. This is a tradition which seems to be built up in later centuries, and it's coined in 19th century editions of heraldic visitations and is then taken up by Wiley and by Hoyleti Evans. Although, to be fair to Hoyleti Evans, he's very suspicious of it. Right, so. It is a puzzle, therefore, that the Kamalmish poet, Lois Lenkolfi, calls Davidgan a knight, in a poem, a eulogy on the death of Davos' daughter, Gladys. Uh, Note the last name, it is the body of Sir David Gann. And I counted the syllables, it seems to work, it doesn't seem to be a later interpol- interpolation. As I say, I'm getting, you know, my, my knowledge of Welsh language and Welsh poetry is limited, but it seems, it, it, and most Flairskin copies manuscripts are autograph manuscripts, most lost the survivors, so it seems that this is actually how the poem was originally meant to go. And Gladys, uh, seen here, is second husband, uh, William Thomas. Uh, in St Mary's uh, Priory, Navagadeli. Now, this is particular. The, now, the suggestion that of knighthood is particularly important for several reasons. First, is the sheer rarity of Welshmen elevated to the rank of knight after 1282 and before the 16th century, a number that is unlikely to have exceeded 30. Um, Second, as it references, as I've said, to English sources, clearly applied to find an esquire immediately after his death. And this is, therefore, quite a, what Lewis Hancock is writing is quite a significant contradiction. Third, related to the previous two points, is that the distinction in status between esquire and knight is frequently noted in poems to many Welsh patrons to, um, in the 15th century. It's expressed in a variety of ways, but the idea is generally that and a squire deserved the rank of knighthood, and it's a frequent tool in the poet's box. Um, you can see this before the 15th century in uh, a praise for drawing Lindor, who are never to be attracted the sort of attention. In comparison to the career soldier or flincher, Sir Gregory Sykes, um, the jurist, Sir Hammer, and the hero of the Battle of Poitiers, Sir Flavivoyev of Aedioneth, who was the principal of Krikiev. And this poem is intended to make precisely that point. Note here that we have Sir Gregor twice Englished. He's a second St. George, and his, and his cognomen, the name by which he's known, is Sais, despite the fact his full Welsh patronym, patronym is something like uh, Gregor Apethalokinrek Sais. So the, the Anglophone, presumably because he was Anglophone, presumably spent very little time actually in Wales, only coming there after his lands, as long as his French wife had been lost. 
but still, it's playing. But Gondor had served with Gregory Sykes at Bewick in, in 1384, so there is a personal connection. We may see such a, such a comparison again in the middle years of the 15th century, and the poem by Dick Dublin to uh, to Harry Griffith, or Henry Griffith, or probably more probably best termed the English black, English translation is Black Harry, um, who was not a nice man. Although it all got on very well, um, and you can see here that. And if he's identified as an esquire, wearing a wearing livery collar, um, which is still the it's the wrong colour, it should be gold. And this is something which is not unfamiliar. The code between gold and silver spurs has existed it has been existed a commonplace here since at least the twelfth century in, in English sources. And the livery collar, those interlaced S's that you see in portraits of Tudor courtiers, um, came about uh, late in the fourteenth century. So this is what's being referred to here. <coughs> both examples, um, both Gondor and uh, Harry Griffith, come from a period where military knights were actually in sharp decline. For example, in John of Gaunt's Chevauchet, his mounted raid which traversed France from Calais to Gascony and Bordeaux in 1370, 10.4% of his entire army consisted of knights. That's 83 men out of about uh, 850. In the reckoning of the Duke of Gloucester and the invasion of Normandy in 1417, just 1.2% of the army, that's 98 men, is substantially, substantially bigger than the were knights. And by 1441, in the army of Richard, Duke of York, just 0.4% of its strength, just 13 men of a large army, consisted of knights. Richard II had raised the last feudal host in 1385, and at that time there were probably about 1,000 knights in England. By the 1430s, there may have been as few as 250 to 300. So these appeals to be made nights is a particularly faint hope. But there is a degree of social cachet that comes with the title. And that mindset was certainly possessed by the audience for Lois Coffey's eulogy. Gladys' sons by her first marriage to Roger Vickham, anglicised as Vaughan, and her sons to William and her sons to a second by a second marriage to William F. Thomas, who died in 1445, most notably William Herbert, Lord of Raglan. They certainly had that world view. For Herbert, the most significant, and still, I think, the most neglected uh, Welshman of the 15th century, uh, was made Earl of Pembroke by Edward IV in 1468, having been elevated to the peerage in 1461, and been knighted long before that, was executed at the behest of Warwick the Kingmaker in 1469. Nobility for him was a ground state. Um, now, nobility in a Welsh context was a reflection of one's lineage, um, but by taking the name of Herbert, rather than being presented to the world as William Vechen and William Thomas, William Herbert made a conscious choice, and as Dylan Foster Evans has pointed out recently, to a particularly far-fetched and very long-ago part of his genealogy, that there is a Herbert in there somewhere. It's the nearest Norman name, as far as I can tell. Um, the poets, recognising this, attributed Dav of Gam as a knightly antecedent and provides a predominantly of a knight antecedent on both sides of his lineage. And I think that's what's going on here. You have a knight for a grandfather and you have a knight for a father. It means that you are, deserve, you are a knight yourself. Your, your, your son is a knight himself. He deserves further honors. I think that's what's going on. It's, so, <coughs> well, by, 
I mentioned Roger Vickham earlier, a breadwood in Herefordshire, <coughs> who had three sons, Walter, Thomas and Roger, and all played important parts in support of the Yorkists during the Wars of the Roses. 16th century sources also state that Roger Vickham died at Agincourt, um, although we don't know he was there. And the presence of an esquire named Roger Vickham in the retinue of the Earl of Warwick in 1417 rather suggests otherwise. It's a sufficiently rare name or combination of names to make that extremely unlikely. But he must have died shortly afterwards. There are a number of problems. There are a number of other problems. <coughs> so you can fight for St George in the 15th century and still be a Welshman. It's it's a contradiction. And one of the other problems with uh, the suggestion that Roger Vechan died at Agincourt is his effigy exists in Redwood in Church. This, so my friends who actually know about armour tell me, the armour clearly dates from a much later period, in the 1440s, at the point where Gladys's other children are doing really rather well. And if he, were, if he died at Agincourt, he died and was part of Gam's retinue. We don't know, because we don't know the names of, who they, of those people. He would have died as an archer. That's not an archer's tomb. That is a knight's tomb. He's wearing the belt of knighthood. He is. So if the invention is going on, for one set of grandfathers, but he's going on for another set of fathers. I can't prove any of this, by the way. It's just an interesting observation. To compare it again to William and Thomas, you can see the similarities in shape of the breastplate and the gauntlets in particular. Um, so, so why... One, one thing is... It's remarkable that although Davagam may be dubbed a knight and perhaps posthumously by Lois Glencoffey, there is no mention in any surviving poem of the Battle of Agincourt itself. And why not? Agincourt had a contemporary fame throughout the English realm that has only grown since. In the context of Wales, however, it came at the end of a decade-long revolt, which for a time had genuinely national aspirations for Wales and whose shadow was a long one. Fighting in France was something which the Welsh gentry came to celebrate by the 1430s and was expressed in praise given by poets. Agincourt was the greatest battle of the age, was too close, perhaps, to the great disappointment of the failure of the rebellion and the upheaval was created. So, in a roundabout way, it seems that Quilty Evans was correct in his conclusion that the dubbings on the field were farther upon history by family pride. It's just that it happens to be rather earlier than he initially thought. Well, T. Evans missed this reference, just as I did the first time I looked at Lois Goncoff. Although it seems for more contemporary political motivation than we had hitherto before. So, to conclude, Wales was affected by Agincourt in different ways, and the effects were far from universal. It was not, of course, a united country. Um, and only a relatively small number of men were selected from the shires and march of Wales to serve in France in 1415. It is true that Henry V had a personal investment in Wales as lord of much of it himself. The Welsh rebellion meant that he was the first English prince of Wales to have to fight for his title. It was suggested in 1916 that special devotions ordered by the Archbishop of Canterbury in January 1416 for St David, St Chad and St Winifred were especially to commemorate the glorious part shown by the Welsh during the battle. 
And it is true that Henry V visited the shrine of St. Winifred, Holywell and Flintshire, probably shortly after this date. The problem here is knowing if the king's interest was more than personal. It is also uh, being a particularly pious man. It is also relevant that the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, Archbishop Chichley, had been Bishop of St. David's before his translation to Canterbury in 1414. St. Chad is a completely erroneous link because his, his connections were with the North and the Midlands. He was a Mercian saint, not a Welsh one. So the documentary record cannot tell us how many of Henry V's Welsh archers fought at Agincourt. 523 recruited, perhaps 50 of these never left Wales at all, and maybe another 50 or 60, or perhaps more, fell out half firm and were given leave to return home. So maybe 400 men from Wales served to fight at Agincourt, and Henry V's army in that battle numbered around 8,000. It is impossible to be sure what effect these Welshmen had, or how even they were deployed on the field of battle. The accounts of the battle are that imprecise. Similarly, in the career of Dad of Gam, the only Welshman to appear in any contemporary account is mysterious, and the historical evidence that has come down to us perhaps is perhaps willfully contradictory. His tiny retinue may well all have died in the battle. No one actually may know, have known for sure what happened. And his posthumous reputation was won, arguably, by his daughter's offspring. It might be expected that a heroic death and a night in the field of battle and a totemic English victory would have yielded praise long before Walter Raleigh got involved. Um, but by the second half of the 15th century, the poets felt able to credit him with a knighthood. It is notable they felt no connection. They made no connection to Henry of Monmouth. Harry Glenwy is another poem of Lois Lenkoff, he calls it. It is notable that but could not bear to associate him with the name of Henry V's great victory. This, perhaps, is one of the more overlooked legacies of Oregon And Finally, on the side, when I summarised this research into Welshmen in the Battle of Agincourt in BBC Radio Wales a few years ago, I was reminded that I'd forgotten something, um, that one Welshman was worth three Englishmen. And who am I to argue? Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for listening. You will find more of our podcasts on cumradorian.org.